Well, good morning. I have, I'm excited for this morning. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart um, that we get to discuss this morning. Uh, glorifying God in literary and artistic culture. So, ooh, we get to talk about movies and books, <laughs> which is always fun. All right, before we get started, um, let's go before the Lord and ask his blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for our chance to gather again as your body, as, as your bride this morning, the bride of Christ, to worship you, to honor you and to thank you for all that you've done and to study your word. And even in this time together this morning, as we, we don't look specifically at your word, but the principles that you have given us to discern how to live holy and godly lives in this present age, we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that um, our time together would honor you, just like the rest of our lives and how what we look at this morning, um, how all of what we do is a reflection of our love for you um, and, and and gives us an opportunity to glorify you. So we pray this morning as we study through this interesting topic um, that you would be glorified. And that you would give me the correct words, that you would give me discernment as I teach. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And for these we give you thanks. Amen. All right. We are, yeah, seeking to glorify God in literary and artistic culture. And our chapter this this week um, comes again from, as if you've been with us, I think everyone has, but... If you haven't gotten the memo, we've been going through Think Biblically, um, a series of, of essays from professors from the Master's College and Seminary, although it's now the Master's University. I think they've officially switched the name, so this book is worthless now. Um, <laughs> it's I'm kidding. Um, and the chapter I'm looking at, actually, is written by uh, one of the professors there. His name is Grant Horner. Um, Grant Horner is a, he, he's a great guy. He's also written another book on this topic, more specifically, um, regarding movies. Um, more specifically, I should say, meaning at the movies, becoming a discerning viewer. Um, Grant Horner, he's associate professor of English at the Master's College, now the Master's University, but has taught film at the college level for 14 years. He has completed coursework for the Ph.D. at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Horner was a contributor to MacArthur's Think Biblically and speaks regularly on current theological trends, philosophy, and popular culture. Um, I was gonna, Michael, have you taken any classes with him before? Okay, obviously not. Have you got, You guys have? All right. Dr. Horner has... Uh, did I see another hand back? I see that hand. All right. Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> um, he's also, if, you, if you're familiar with Dr. Horner at all, he has a wonderful but difficult Bible reading program that he has, has published. Um, basically, it's 10 chapters a day, and it doesn't go chronologically through the Scripture. You actually kind of work through themes and... Uh, if you follow the program exactly how he's done it, it takes about an hour, hour and a half each day, but it's a wonderful program um, of, of Bible study. And it basically shows you this, co- the Bible becomes a commentary on itself. 
as you start reading it. Because you read, you're, you're reading through Proverbs every day, you're reading through Psalms every day, you're reading through uh, the Gospels every day, you're reading through the Epistles, you're reading through um, the the Pentateuch, you're reading through all the prophets, you're, you're just reading through all these different, not the Pentateuch, um, the Pentateuch, yeah, the Pentateuch, what am I thinking? Um, but you're, you're getting this grand scope of Scripture every day, and you start seeing how Scripture works um, to, to be a commentary on itself. Um, you can look it up online if you're a daredevil. It's a wonderful program. Um, I've, I've done it for the I've, I've started it and then trimmed it a couple times here and there, but it's a, I've, I've always appreciated what I've done there. But glorifying God in literary and artistic culture, we live in a very fallen world. Um, it doesn't take much for us to, to notice that. Uh, oftentimes it looks as if we are falling as well as being fallen. Human culture seems to be getting worse and worse. Whole armies of commentators, both political conservatives and Judeo-Christian culture supporters, flood book racks, magazine racks, and airwaves with messages of a moral, cultural meltdown. Um, We see this everywhere. And proclaim that if we do not fight back to preserve the moral center of Western culture, we will become overwhelmed by the evils of all the isms of the world. You may supply you may supply the ism of your choice marxism postmodernism feminism etc etc they all go on ironically it is both easy and common for christians to look at the area of life or what we call a broader thing the humanities of art and culture literature philosophy and so forth the identi- and identify these humans achievements as what the source of all this evil that's in the world if Kim Kardashian didn't have her TV show, the world would be a better place, right? No. Uh, we're going to learn that it's not Kim Kardashian's fault. Um, if Christians attempt to approach culture, literature, film, the arts, the philosophies of humanity from a culture, cultural standpoint, they will be acting in disobedience to God. Culture's reference point is relative and ever-changing, while God's standard is an absolute and immutable, unchanging force. Well, why do we say this? Or, or where do we get an even an example? Uh, Horner went in a place that I never anticipated he would start with. He went to John Calvin. <laughs> to understand this. John Calvin is famous for his, what? His tulip, well, his most, which comes from his most famous work itself, which is a literary work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin's work, whether or not one's, one agrees with his theological position, which I think most of us here do, is a compelling example of biblical discernment regarding culture. Um, it's a fa- it's fascinating to observe his treatment of various human ideas about the very issue of culture. This is what Calvin says. He says it would be foolish to seek a definition of soul from the philosophers. Of them, hardly one, except Plato, has rightly affirmed its amoral subs- or its immortal substance. Indeed, 
Other Socratics also touch upon it, but in a way that shows how nobody teaches clearly a thing of which has not been persuaded. Hence, Plato's opinion is more correct because he considers the image of God in the soul. When Calvin discusses the nature of the human soul, he first begins by examining the thinking of of great philosophers um, who he studied extensively, um, in because he grew up in a culture, the 16th century culture studied the classical, the, the Christian, the humanistic education of the day. He observes Plato through a pagan, philo- though he was a pagan philosopher, had a somewhat accurate view, which Calvin calls is more correct, um, basically giving some leeway here, implying that there is a final standard of judgment that is possible to be closer to or further from. One may ask, more correct than whom? The other philosophers who are in deeper error? How does Calvin know this? Quite simply by reading and analyzing their work and then comparing them to Scripture itself. The ultimate standard of truth, Calvin then says, is this. We are forced to part somewhat from this way of teaching because the philosophers, ignorant of the corruption of nature that originated from the penalties of man's defecation, mistakenly confuse two very diverse states of man. Calvin observes that philosophers' basic error is their presumption that what? Man is not in a state of depravity. Calvin knows that man is inherently fallen in its nature. And he recognizes his own fallen nature. The purpose that this this topic has to be set up in with this kind of ugly start, this idea of understanding the fallen nature um, is twofold. First, it shows that studying and interacting with culture does not necessarily corrupt a person. Culture didn't corrupt you. Second, according to the Bible, believers have the facilities to understand uh, an understanding and will that Calvin affirmed in his writings. It is in this critical relationship between understanding and the will of man that is found the mandate and necessar- necessity for us to exercise discernment in all areas, including arts and culture. <sighs> discernment. Um, Dr. Horner goes on, say, the ex- exploration, the discovery, and a choice says, good and evil are located in the realm of choice. Sculpture, music, poetry, painting, film, these are abstract entities without an inherent moral nature. In the abstract, there is no more or less moral nature than a V8 engine block or a pair of swim fins. Moral nature is what we create when we invest content. And I'm going to read exactly what he says here because he says it so well. All human creations demonstrate the fallenness of mankind and reflect, whether they mean it or not, what God has said about man. That although he or she is likely utterly fallen, yet he or she still possesses the imago Dei, the image of God. Furthermore, by the Lord's sovereign design, fallen humans will make some essentially accurate observations and then create cultural artifacts. For example, Shakespeare's Hamlet, Plato's Ion, or Bill Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. That, to an extent, correctly represents aspects of the universe. 
Due to our fallen natures, these observations and representations will, nonetheless, always also contain error. As fallen observers, our difficult task is to discern error from truth. So then many are going to say, what's the point of all of this? It, it, when, when we look at stuff, it's only entertainment. It's just something that I, I kind of get a buzzkill on, and, and what I, or don't be a buzzkill, I should say. It's something I just relax on. It's just entertainment, or, or even it's, I'm learning things. There's educational material, or it's just simply an irrelevant pop culture. That might be an oversimplification of a way of thinking of it. In fact, in, in the life of a Christian, nothing is ever considered irrelevant. Nothing is irrelevant. If believers have been purchased not with corruptible earthly things, but with the incalculably precious blood of Christ, then every action and every thought must be held captive to the Lordship of Christ. A scriptural response to literary and artistic culture is not only pragmatically valuable, it honors God and is, in reality, an act of direct obedience. Ignoring or minimizing it, in fact, is disobedience. But then on the other side, to swing the pendulum all the other way, isolationism is equally an, an, an an opposite error. Consider the current craze among evangelicals for Christian fiction and movies. Unfortunately, without considering the aesthetic merits of, of these things, which are usually pretty pathetic, um, if I do say so myself, many Christians, unfortunately, in the world today are getting their theology out of these things. Where should they be going to to get their theology? They should be going to the Word of God. Um, they're getting their theology, especially, I hate to say it, their eschatology, um, from these sources rather than going directly to the source of Scripture. There is potential great danger in this trend because who is setting the pattern for the church and the theology of the church now? Man, and this Hollywood culture that it tries to live up to. This very, the very best Christian film or fictional work has never had the same powerful effect as something as mere and simple as scripture. Um, I always like it uh, sometimes as being a pastor. We, I haven't had it happen here, but it's happened in other places I've served. I get invited to movie screenings for the latest Christian film. I don't think they want to invite us here um, to those things. Um, I've gone to a couple of them, and I go, my goal is not to evangelize people with a movie. It is to teach them the Word of God. And that is where the power comes. And people are going, well, you can share the gospel with a movie. A movie is great, but it does not—it's not the Word of God. It's not where the power lies. Um, it can be good. I'm not. I'm not. Dis, I'm not totally throwing the baby out with the bathwater either. It is critical to understand that we are not. That that our intent here is not to critique certain authors, genres, styles, or even the content. It provides rather a set of skills and strategies and strategies for negotiating a world filled with decisions on every corner that we have to make. Um, it's useful to apply other forms of artistic culture and expressions from television commercials to, um, well, 
opera and the symphony, um, from from art films to, to commercials. Um, he uh, from Seinfeld to a comic book strip. Um, we need to always be exercising discernment. Every day we encounter talk shows on the radio, magazine advertisements, um, documentaries or cable television, some things that are supposed to be edutainment, um, as they're called, and almost a numbing onslaught of cultural material. I was reading another book, and I don't have it here. I thought I brought it with me. Um, called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. And, and in its preface, the, the, the author was t- making a comment. He goes, we live in a culture, if you think about a hundred years ago, music was something that was an event to partake in. It wasn't in the homes. They didn't have record players yet. And so when they heard music, it was always performed live, and it was a special event. Now, you can't walk through the grocery store without hearing it in the background, and it's cheapened the value of music because nobody listens to it anymore. You don't listen to music. It's simply background noise. Um, and, and that, we've become desensitized in a lot of ways to the beauty of some of the greatest arts. Um, how can we process sort or evaluate all this material when we've become numb to it with biblical discernment. Um, One of the greatest passages we can do is look at Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what's the, what's the, what do we need to do? We need to exercise powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Having an expert merely deliver a lecture about the do's and don'ts about aesthetic involvement for the believer will not likely result in the true spiritual growth of anyone. Just spoon feeding somebody, go to this, go to that, don't go to this, don't go to that, don't read this, don't do that. That, that doesn't help anyone. That doesn't help anyone. Teaching the process of discernment, however, plants a garden that will bear much fruit. Here's some questions. There are several core areas that we have to consider when attempting to approach cultural artifacts from a biblical perspective. The first question, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine questions. First one, what is the apparent moral stance of the work in question? No author does any writes or, or p- puts together anything in a vacuum. They are putting together a moral stance of something. Is good represented as good, or is evil represented, and, or, and is evil represented as evil? Are these categories blurred or even reversed? I remember when the movie Ocean's Eleven came out, and I felt <laughs> weird. I was cheering for the bad guys in the end of it. It's a fun movie. But at the end, I'm going, I just cheered for guys who are robbing things and and trying to get away with with horrible things. Is good represented as good and is evil represented as evil? What is the apparent moral stance of the work in question? What is the second question? What is the apparent worldview of the author? Is there a God in the universe whom the work represents and what kind of God is he or she or it, according to the author? 
Is the universe a place of free will or fatalistic determinism? Does good or evil win in the end? Is life meaningless or meaningful? Is it random or purposeful? Is the universe a place that makes sense or is it going somewhere or not? What is the worldview of the author? Thirdly, what can be accepted? For example, what is true? What parts of this representation agree with biblical revelation and to what degree? Fourth, what must be, be rejected as untrue? What is against biblical revelation? And what do we disagree with in what we're watching or reading or partaking in? Fifth, should one retreat from or participate in culture? And to what extent should one participate or retreat? How can a person, person glorify God throughout his or her experience with this particular thing that you're participating in? The rest of the questions here are more directly personal and, and they're quite practical. Can participation in this cultural artifact be used for God's glory? It doesn't need much explanation. Will participation be detrimental to one's spiritual life? Will this lead to a person becoming desensitized to their own sin and to sin in general when they encounter it and, and, and the desperate plight of lost people? Is this a personal problem area? Has the person who is participating in watching this movie or reading this book struggled in the past in the area that the book is addressing? Um, the negative portrayal of an affair. Um, the positive depiction of materialistic atheism in a contemporary movie. Can one find any of the material presented alluring or enticing in a sinful way, causing your own heart to yearn for that which you should not? If so, should the person risk his or her mental purity using his or her freedom in Christ as rationalization? Is the person's conscience uncomfortable about participating in the activity? And then the final question, has the person's obedience been compromised to a point that he or she doesn't recognize that this is a problem area anymore? And that's a big question. What's your motivation? Is there a wholehearted desire to glorify God by discerning obedience? Or is a person being fooled into thinking that sin is not sin and that temptation is no longer temptation? Do you still understand the depravity of fallen man is basically the question. And your own fallenness. These are questions we have to think as we participate in artistic culture. Um, throughout history, Christianity has dealt with the arts positively and negatively. Many Christians have used Old Testament narratives as biblical justification for total separation from culture. Um, an example is Exodus 34. The Lord commands the Israelites to destroy all the idolatrous altars of the local pagans to avoid infection by their wickedness. Um, however, using this passage to justify a simple anti-culture attitude universally applicable to all Christians is without biblical warrant for several reasons. First, the church and Israel are not the same. <laughs> Um, if you need help, read Romans 11. Second, Christians are not commanded to fight in the physical sense for the kingdom of God. Third, the issue 
with Israel and the pagans are primarily idolatry, not culture. It was idolatry that Israel was supposed to um, destroy, not culture. Although idolatry is the contaminated root that eventually corrupts a culture, the problem is not is essentially with sin and not culture, which merely bears the mark of sin. So, you, so some people use that Old Testament uh, isolationism, which they use incorrectly. But in the Middle Ages, we also see history making its, its mark upon culture. Augustine, in the early Middle Ages, distinguishes between using and enjoying. We are surrounded by things that we enjoy, but the most important things that we must do is use everything to bring us closer to God, the true object of enjoyment. Our fallen tendency is to miss true enjoyment because we're focused on false enjoyment. And where does true enjoyment come? It's found only in God. Instead of distracting ourselves with merely earthly enjoyment, we must learn to make right choices. That was Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to fight over his pronunciation of his name. Um, in the Reformation, the Reformation was huge in the arts. What was also going on during the time of the Reformation? We have the Renaissance going on. Many Christians are surprised to learn that the vast majority of the Protestant reformers were thoroughly educated in pagan classics. <gasps> the period of the Reformation, like I said, coincided with the Re Renaissance. What was going on in the Renaissance? This was a rebirth of the interest of classic pagan and early Christian culture that occurred in Italy in the 15th and 16th century and then spread throughout Europe culminating in the English Renaissance of the 16th and 17th centuries. And many evangelicals have considered the Renaissance an evil period. Why? Because it gave rise to secularism is what it did. However, it also, the Renaissance paved the way for the Reformation at the same time. Why do we say that? Martin Luther remarked on the parallel growth of the Renaissance and the Reformation by saying that God always prepares the way for a great move of his hand by raising up a generation of what? Language scholars, like so many John the Baptists, making the road straight and clear. He did this, God did the same thing when, when Jesus came. He set up a Roman culture that was perfect for the spread of the gospel. And the Roman culture is one of the worst cultures that ever lived when it comes to paganism. So the Reformation would not have taken place without the rise of printing, without the printing press, the study of Greek, without critical examination of texts, and of all the hallmarks of the Renaissance. That paved the way for the Reformation to spread. I mean, we can see humanism and and other stuff creep in, but at the same time, there was a greater thing that God was working because of culture. And he used, he used the arts of the day to help spread the gospel. Um, contemporary Christianity, I, I'm going to kind of skip through some of these other parts of history. They're interesting, but contemporary Christianity, um, if, as we move to our day, some 20th century fundamentalists were strongly taught an anti-art standpoint. However, as a general rule, their real concern was not with the art itself, but with positive portrayal of evil and immortality. 
the central issue of how evil is portrayed negatively or positively. And what was the primary target in contemporary Christianity? It was film. That evil silver screen. Film was the primary target due to a rapid growth of the media form during the same period as the rise of fundamentalism. Legalistic branches of Christianity decried all film, literature, and artistic culture as inherently evil and to be shunned, whereas those of a more liberal persuasion tended to swing excessively in the direction of widespread permissiveness. Now, my parents grew up in a culture, and I can imagine some of you did, where you're going, oh yeah, I grew up in that. Where if you were caught walking anywhere near the movie theater, you were probably going to be under church discipline the next week. Um, or, or if you had a TV in your home, you were in big trouble. Um, that's legalism. That's not using discernment. Um, neither position is biblical. Mindless, uncritical exposure to everything available for, for consumption is absolute foolishness. But so is extreme isolationism. Neither are biblical, and isolationism is basically impossible today. Unless you go live up on a mountain. Okay, we have some of those people. Sorry. <laughs> it's, but it's even up there on the mountain. It's true. Yeah, they come down. No. <laughs> but isolationism is not even an answer, and it's, it's virtually impossible. So what does Scripture say about all of this? I mean, ultimately we're saying Scripture needs to be the authority. Since the issue simply does not always resolve itself with a clear biblical passage, it's necessary to look at biblical principles because um, we understand the sufficiency of the Word. Um, let's start. It starts right in Genesis chapter 1. God is a creative God. God is, is the creator of everything, including creativity. Um, certain creativity is in itself not inherently evil because why? Because God himself is creative. We see this in Genesis 1. Creativity is never forbidden in scripture, but the idolization of objects created is sinful. Due to the fall, mankind is now utterly corrupt. He can do no good, though he knows what is good, and he cannot help but do evil. Men sometimes appear to be doing good, but even this is an evidence of human depravity. When a fallen, unredeemed person does a good deed, that's definitely in quotes, there is often at least some underlying selfish motivation, and even if there isn't, theoretically speaking, the mere fact that the person performing the deed is inherently sinful makes the deed corrupt in God's eyes. And that we get from Proverbs 21.4. Dirty hands handling good deeds makes the good deeds dirty. Holiness is utter purity, not general cleanliness. But as my mother used to ingrain in me when I was a kid, anytime I did anything, I heard these words, Philippians 4, 8. And if you are familiar with that, if you're not, turn to it, because you need to be. This is probably the most easy 
way to discern what is necessary. The most familiar and useful passage when considering a Christian's response to artistic culture is Philippians 4, verse 8. I should have this memorized, but I have it memorized in a different version, so I'm going to read it from mine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I love that Paul gives us a positive list, not the negative list. He does a lot of the other negative stuff in other places. But he gives us a positive list about the things that we should think about, the things that we should set our mind upon. Verse 8 enclosed within, enclosed within two references to the peace of God. God's peace leads the Christian to meditate on things that are good. These things that are, are found in verse 8. And that meditation fills him or her with the peace of God when you focus upon those things. It should be noted that this passage contains a general presupposition. If believers are to think on these things that Paul explicitly lists, then they must discover these things. This then is a process of discernment, of seeing what is out there. You can't discern if you don't know what's out there in some, case, in, in some cases. And then deliberately, obediently choosing the good over the evil and making it the object of meditation. This doesn't mean I have to go down and watch the, I don't know what the highest rating, NC-17, is that what it is now? They keep changing some of these at movie theaters. It doesn't mean I have to go watch the horrible movies <laughs> to, to know what's going on. Um, I remember a couple months ago, a movie came out that um, even secular people were saying, don't go see this movie. It is too evil and horrible. And it was a comic book movie. Um, there's a problem when the world gets that it's wrong. And yet, I hate to say it, I know people in this church who went and saw it. I go, when the world knows it's wrong and we participate in it, there's something wrong there. Unfortunately, when, when we read something like Philippians 4, verse 8, we, it should always be used in harmony with 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. Test everything, hold fast that which is good. But unfortunately, the flesh wants to read that as a, an all-out permission to try anything and everything that comes along. And that's not the case. The in in First Thessalonians five twenty two the King James version really vividly says abstain from all appearance of evil and therefore we need to use discernment in that the principle is clear when in doubt the question must be asked does participation in this activity even look evil. Does it look evil? Evil often masquerades as good, but only rarely and briefly can a discerning Christian be fooled into thinking that something good is actually evil. Goodness is essentially open and clear. It has nothing to hide. Evil works by misdirection, disguise, and deception. Again, the key is discernment. Good and evil often intermix in this world and are difficult to discern. Therefore, we need to, because of our fallen nature, be drenched in this, in this, in this book, 
to understand as Philippians 4, 8, what is true, to know what is commendable, what is lovely, even in an aesthetic sense. Many a beautiful poem is radically opposed to God and his justice. Many beautiful movies paint immorality in a beautiful way. Um, I remember Patrice and I were talking about a movie a couple months uh, about a couple months ago. She didn't know what the movie was when she went into it and walked out going, what was that? Because the ads for it was this beautiful love story. And it came out in the end, it was this whole picture of painting euthanasia as a beautiful, loving, wonderful thing. That's deception and that's evil and that's desensitizing us to sin and taking that image of God that, that man is created in and saying, it's worthless, we can destroy it, and glorifying that. Glorifying that evil. Here's a little tip. I, I learned this years ago. I think it's within, if you leave a movie theater within the first 30 minutes, they'll give you all your money back. <laughs> I've walked out of many movies. Um, probably not enough movies, but I have walked out. And it's nice to get your money back. Because <laughs> they can be expensive. Um, but, okay, so what are some critical questions? Just so that I can wrap up here and we can kind of move on. We really need to just be focused upon Philippians 4.8. My mother, she did a great job, bless her, for doing this every single time I turned on the TV I heard her just yell through the hallway Philippians 4 8 I knew what she meant if I was downstairs playing with Lego she would she would yell Philippians 4 8 if I was reading a book like I heard that that phrase Philippians 4 8 she didn't that's all she had to say over and over again and I started to almost not like when I heard it because it just convicted my heart going ah all right is what I'm doing honorable? Is it true? Is it good? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is what I'm doing commendable? Is there any excellence? If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So that's what the Bible says about it. That's how the Bible says to exercise discernment. At some point, though, discerning Christians must make a series of choices. And consider these three central issues. Can humans make right choices as well as observations and represent, uh, representations? Can humans do that? The answer is yes. Because we've been commanded to. We've been commanded to make right choices as well as observations. Humans are entirely depraved in every aspect of their being and can make no right choices outside the assistance of the grace of God, though. Though we are responsible to God for our lives, he still rules sovereignly over us. This includes our decisions, both right and wrong. No human can be right, though, without God and make right decisions without his grace. Is there such a thing as wisdom or truth outside the sphere of God and his word? Here's the definition. I'm just going to read what Grant Horner writes here because I don't want to mess this up. Here the definition of truth is critical. Accurate example, or in other words, true to reality, observation, and representation is obviously possible. 
A man may see a photograph of the woman who gave birth to him and raised him and refer to her as his mother. This is a true and accurate statement. He may write an essentially accurate biographical story about her or a poem or a song or make a sculpture or drawing. These could all more or less be referred to as true or accurate. However, if he begins to produce a philosophical text that deals with her essential nature, and that text departs from basic biblical principles, for instance, suggesting that she is by nature good, at that point a problem arises. It is no longer true. Here's the difficulty. Part of the representation is true. She is the woman who bore and raised him, and part is not. that She is by nature good. The phrase, all truth is God's truth, is the most cliche, most often heard in this kind of situation. Again, definition of terms is central. If truth is the sum total of everything that accords with the reality of the world God has made and rules over, from the simple meaning of Scripture in John 3.16 to the way cells divide, then of course all truth is God's truth. But because a man's utterly fallen nature before salvation and the still active fallen nature after salvation, our tendency is to see something for which there is or appears to be evidence and then hastily judge it to be part of God's truth. But nothing is proven to be true just because it is hard to argue against. Every day, people whom the Bible says are totally depraved do things that appear to be good. How can bad people do good things? Part of the answer lies in a proper biblical understanding of fallen human nature and perception. If a person's presuppositional authority is Charles Darwin's naturalistic, mechanistic view of the universe, then he, she, will likely find evidence for evolution in the study of nature. If one chooses to follow the dictates of psychological theory, then he or she will see the evidence for it. A person relying on the authority of the tabloids will believe that aliens are receiving pre-invasion advice from Elvis Presley and JFK, who were abducted and replaced with look-alike dead bodies. Similarly, a Christian's belief in the Bible both creates and affirms his or her worldview. A person's chosen attitudes and presuppositions about the world are a major influence in forming one's conceptions of the world. Some kinds of faith precede every kind of knowledge. It's just that Christians are willing to admit this, while most others are not. That's why I read it, because he says it a whole lot better than I could. So the question is not, is there wisdom or truth outside of God's word? That's an absurd question. The only important question is, are my beliefs and perceptions attuned to God or to something else? And then the third question to kind of wrap it up here. Is there any value to the study of human culture, particularly artistic culture? I would say yes. I would say yes, absolutely. Um... All must be done, though, to the glory of God. All must be done, and certainly studying or participating in human culture must be done carefully and with weighed proportion. Because uh, only Scripture enlightens, convicts, and changes men and women. Shakespeare makes some very sharp observations on the human uh, experience, but his works have never once converted a sinner. I mean, this book we have here in in 
it, there's prose in here. There is poetry. There's, there's art in this book. It's more than that, but there's, it's written in an artful way itself. It's not the realm, beyond the realm of possibility, however, for God to sovereignly to use a Christian's educational experience occasionally, including the study of Shakespeare, to bring some genuine spiritual growth. Um, what is crucial to understand, however, is that a, a clear reading of Hamlet will not in and of itself lead to spiritual insight, to true spiritual insight, I should say. But read, by reading a novel, listening to a song, or studying a philosophical argument in the light of Scripture, however... We do several things. First, we obey God. If we will judge angels, shouldn't we be able to judge books? (laughs) And second, we are enabled to deliberately and knowledgeably shield ourselves from worldliness, which will surround us whether we engage with culture intentionally or not. So, yeah, engage with culture, but weigh it with the theological and and with a with an understanding saturated life in the scriptures because what is the greatest aesthetic pleasure of all it's the beauty of the lord christians above all should be the most creative people should have the most beauty i remember one time hearing macarthur after somebody had sung a solo at his church it was beautiful. It was my first Sunday, actually, that I ever went to Grace Community Church. And uh, and I, I can remember sitting there going, wow, these people are great musicians. And, and this woman was up there saying a beautiful solo. And he went up there, and he goes, many churches always ask, Do, are we contemporary? Are we traditional? And he goes, I don't think about those things. He goes, I want our music to be beautiful. And, what, and and that spans different genres. He goes, but it's beautiful. Because why? Because our Lord is beautiful and he requires beautiful worship. Believers are given the privilege of worshiping an almighty God in the, as Psalm 96 says, in the beauty of holiness. So where do we find the greatest beauty? We find it in God himself. And God himself is a creative God. Therefore, God is the object of beauty, the ultimate object of aesthetic pleasure. He's loving and serving. And so loving and serving and worshiping God is something that is pleasurable. And that is where we find the greatest pleasure, the greatest aesthetic, the greatest enjoyment, the greatest beauty comes through God himself. And the only way we understand that is by saturating ourselves again with the Word of God, which itself is beautiful because it's His revealed Word to us. Um, Before the fall, free enjoyment of everything in God was central for Adam and Eve. There was a single command to obey, and all else was left for their pleasure in God and His creation. But what happened after the fall? Discerning obedience in a world of ambiguity and potential temptation became the central activity. By the 21st century, America is a leisure culture, a simulated garden of earthly delights. People work hard, but what is the phrase? We work hard, but we play harder. Yeah. Americans' clothes, homes, and even vehicles are designed now for recreation. 
Most Americans and unfortunately most Christians sit like zombies before their televisions, movies, and computer screens numbed into a state of leisure, leisurely narcosis, unwillingly and perhaps unable to ever actually formulate a genuine thought about what they are encountering. So what do we need to focus on? Again, the question is, how can I enjoy when I'm a busy analyst how can I enjoy when I'm busy analyzing, critiquing, and theologizing? It's a hard word. Several critical points must be understood. First, believers are not here to enjoy the world or to love the world system of culture. Second, Christians are called and commanded even to judge the world by biblical standards. Third, if one does not fit uh, first without the second, one will become more and more like the world and less and less like Christ. However, if Christians do the second, they will participate in a bibli- biblically in their culture, learning how to enjoy some of the pleasures of being human while enjoying the greatest pleasure of all, obedience to God. So we need to be discerning. We live in a fallen world, one that looks as if it's falling as well as fallen. We cannot change the course of our culture. The culture is not redeemable because it is lost. But people are redeemable. What Christians can do is live in the now for what is going to happen then, looking ahead, always holding before their minds the eternal glory of the living God. And I'll end with this from Mark chapter 7. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been given a lot to consider here as we engage our culture. We know we can't transform anyone in our culture, or we can't transform the culture, but you transform lives and hearts every single day. And so, well, we can enjoy the beauty around us, and we can enjoy your great creativity and the creativity that you've given other men. May we always, always, may we always, always, always reflect upon the truth as revealed through your word and let your truth as we understand it from your revealed word in the Bible shape and, and, and form our thoughts and our worldview and everything we do. May we be a testament to our culture so that lives will be changed not the culture and that we will see many come into eternity because of our understanding of how you are beautiful and you are good and you are right and true and you are honorable and you are pure and you are commendable and you are worthy of praise. May we think on these things. May we think on you as we discern our our role within our world that we live in. May you be honored and glorified even in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.